And I said, Mr. Withers, I have to tell you, I, I, I was going to play one of your songs and, and I, I just couldn't do it. And he goes, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. My guest today is singer-songwriter Chris Pierce, a Los Angeles-based musician whose latest album, American Silence, is filled with soulful and stirring songs that stay stuck in your mind and your heart. His music has been praised by NPR Music, Rolling Stone, and LA Weekly, among other publications, and his songs have appeared on the ABC drama A Million Little Things and on several episodes of the NBC hit This Is Us. In fact, he wrote a song for that show. He's currently on tour, having just played at the Kennedy Center, and you can check out his tour dates at chrispierce.com. He's also collaborated or shared stages with a variety of artists, including Sarah Bareilles, Seal, B.B. King, Jill Scott, Al Green, and so many more over the years. I'm honored to have him here today. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. I should point out to uh, folks that you and I have probably known each other on and off for about 20 years around the traps here in Los Angeles. And whenever I get an opportunity to, to talk to you, I feel like I'd learned something. So thank you. Well, thank you. How has touring been going for you? It's been great. It's been a whirlwind. I, I basically just started saying yes to everything that my agent would call for. And I just thought to myself, you might as well get out there, just doing my best to stay safe and I'm masked up. And uh, so far, so good. Just being out there and playing again with people and in front of people has been this new emotional high for me. There's not a show that's gone by that I haven't been in tears at some point in the set. And um, it's good. It's like a newfound emotion within a, a plain life. That in Interestingly yeah. enough, you and I spent, I don't know, what, a day and a half together when we went out to the original Thinkers Conference event in Telluride, which by the way, folks, if you've never been, it is one of the hardest places to get to. I, I think we flew out to was it Fort Collins or somewhere? And then got in a car and drove for like ever. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, that. yeah, that's right. I don't know where it was, but, the, but I remember that the flight attendant in Salt Lake city didn't show up and we've had to wait. Uh, yeah, we didn't think we were going to get out. <laughs> I, I bring that up just to let people know that yes, when he travels, he's masked up and, and ready to go. And the dates have obviously been, obviously been a little sporadic over the last seven months, but things ramping up now, are you sort of back on track with the same amount of live work you were doing before the pandemic or close to it? Yeah, I hope so. I have a lot of dates scheduled and I think everybody's just kind of playing it by ear. So I've been out there and I, I'm going to continue to to just keep doing it as long as that feeling's still there. Uh, and I feel like I'm adding something uh, to folks' evening and not taking away from it in any, in any way. You've had a fascinating life, mate. I mean, getting your start way back when on kids entertainment shows like Kids Incorporated, which, by the way, was also the launching pad for Fergie, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and other child stars. How did starting out that early impact your career? And do you feel that you were ready for navigating the entertainment industry because you started so young? I think so. My earliest memory was uh, I used to go through the LA Times when I was a little kid in the classified sections. <laughs> I decided that I'd start looking for work at like age eight. And I found an ad for a production at Barnstall Theater here in Los Angeles. And uh, I asked my parents if I could go audition and uh, got in the cast. And I was pretty determined from that point forward that 
kind of being involved in productions was something I really wanted to do. And, and of course the expression part of it was huge for me. So it just kind of from then on, like touring now, I just seized opportunities, uh, said yes to anything I could and just tried to learn as much as I could from all the great people that were around me when I was young. Also, when you were young, when you were 15, you developed uh, a rare hearing disorder that led to you losing uh, the hearing in, in one ear and uh, left you with partial hearing in the other. This would have ended a lot of musicians' careers right there. How did you keep going? How did that setback inspire you? Really, really from the support of family, friends, and community, I, I was devastated. I was completely lost when that happened. And of course, I was a 15-year-old going through all the things that 15-year-olds do anyway. Yeah, and, I'm talking uh, about it was a really heavy point in my life. And I had some, a couple music teachers in particular that really empowered me in every way possible, just literally would lift me up off the ground when I was trying to basically learn music again with one ear or with a partially one ear. And that led to my own belief in, in, in self-determination to not feel sorry for myself in any way, uh, that there's, there were a lot of people that were going through way harder things to do what they love uh, and have historically. And so that just made me kind of get up and go. And it really made me evaluate my appreciation of the sacredness of music and what it really means to me at a really young age. And I, I got to really just look that straight in the face and it looked back at me and said that this is something that can continue to change your life if you fight for it. Uh, and so that's what I did. You know, adversity is something that can either make you stronger or make you stop, can it really? And, and I know that you've come up against that at various times throughout your life as a musician. And as just a guy living in the, you know, in the community of, of musicians in Los Angeles and being a black man at this time. And some of the things that you've talked to me about, and I don't suppose we're going to get into that too much right now, but tell us a little bit about the last couple of years for you and the reckoning that uh, America is trying to deal with right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I've been thinking a lot about that lately because I'm going to be going in to record a new album and, um, and I find myself working on songs about resilience and empathy and empowerment. And then I find myself kind of in a, a little bit of a sarcastic feeling uh, a lot when I'm thinking about this album. Uh, and I really just want to keep reminding people to not jump ship uh, from what they uh, decided they were going to be a part of in 2020 and to make it part of their daily life. And the album that I made really was powerful for me. And as a result, some of the stories, some of the personal stories and some of the history lessons, I feel like that I was able to talk about through music were heard by a lot, a lot of people, I'd say were heard kind of globally and, and especially nationally by more, more people than have, that have ever heard my music. And I feel like speaking those hard truths really resonated in a time when folks really needed to hear them. My hope is that they uh, take that record and take those ideas and keep searching uh, and keep uh, digging uh, and keep reading and keep learning more and keep, keep staying open and, and stay active uh, in the fight for uh, equality and the fight against injustice uh, for all. In particular, the songs American Silence and It's Been Burning for a While, which uh, I know you wrote in response to uh, the murder of George Floyd in June of 2020. They're real indictments, I think, and for those uh, of our listeners who have not heard them, I ask you to do a favor, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, do check them out. 
NPR music critic Ann Powers said of American Silence that it is the song white allies need to hear because it so beautifully says that loving protest songs isn't enough. Rolling Stone said American Silence is the sound of everyone who's hungry for change. Uh, and for what it's worth, I just think that everybody should listen to that. Nick Harcourt says you should listen to that song and think about it. Were you surprised? by how well-received the songs were. And, and interestingly enough, uh, another question, have you been influenced by other protest music either before the last couple of years or uh, perhaps even more importantly in, in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, in response to the first part of the question, I, I think I was surprised because uh, I was in lockdown just like everybody else. And I was writing about these things and really just getting stuff out and did this album by myself, really, and sang all the background parts, did a kind of an acoustic album. And I thought, you know, maybe folks will have the capacity to hear it, and uh, maybe, who knows? But it wasn't, there were no expectations. And it's just been, it's really been a beautiful thing for me that as many folks have listened and reached out in response to it. And um, it's also a reminder for me to, to keep really writing from... Uh, uh, a place of empathy, to be as vulnerable uh, as possible with with the ideas that I share, and to also be vulnerable to the fact that that I'm opening up conversations that I'm going to need to to be a part of and be be a, a responsible part of that. And the uh, the second part of the question, I did li listen to a lot of protest music and folk music growing up, not only from my parents' record collection, but in the community. My parents were, you know, an, an interracial couple. They got together in the late 1960s. So naturally, there was a, a lot of Richie Havens and, and Dylan and a lot of the great folk artists, Janice Ian, um, playing in my house. But also, when I moved to the town of Claremont uh, when I was a kid, there was a, a really beautiful community of folk artists there that, that I could hear and learn from. And so it's been something that's been around me. Uh, since I was really, really young. And, and what what about recently, in, in the last couple of years, have you been hearing new voices as you've been traveling around and perhaps sharing stages with other artists? Yeah, absolutely. I have a side project with Sonny War called Warren Pierce. And uh, Sonny is just incredibly brilliant. If you don't know her, just stop what you're doing and find one of her albums. And she's actually introduced me to a lot of folks kind of in the underground folk scene. And Sonny is just an incredible person to write with and sing with and play with. Through that, my eyes have opened to a lot of artists, especially black artists that are out there um, playing folk music and playing protest music and really talking about things that matter through their music. And, you know, I have to give it up to, to black women in particular for really leading the charge uh, and leading by example uh, and really embracing and creating and cultivating a community for for a lot of black artists uh, to really feel uplifted and supported. And War and Peace, by the way, is just one of the coolest project names ever. And especially when you think about the the, the two people making that music together. I, again, I, I would recommend you go check that out, guys, as well, if you can. So, Chris, let's jump into our Sound of Success questionnaire. What is your first musical memory? First musical memory for me is is honestly learning how to spell my name <laughs> by singing the letters. My my mother was a teach is it's well is a teacher retired teacher and my dad had a beautiful voice and they used to sing to me over and over again 
C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R. Christopher is my name. Ask me again and I'll spell it the same. I love it. Yeah. And that's how I learned how to spell my name. <laughs> and then, other than that, I remember uh, my dad singing to my mom. Uh, there was one song in particular, I Write the Songs. And uh, my dad would just wail in the living room. I write the songs that make the whole world sing. Barry Manilow song, right? Yeah, Barry Manilow. Yeah. yeah great song. <laughs> yeah, and he'd sing to my mom at, at all times, especially when he was, you know, in trouble or, or I think, trying to get her in the mood, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned some of the protest music that, that you heard uh, as a kid. What, what other music was, was around the house? A lot of Aretha Franklin. My dad was the biggest Aretha Franklin fan I've ever met. You know, he just ran to Poobah Records in Pasadena every time an Aretha Franklin uh, album would come out. A lot of jazz, uh, a lot of like Wes Montgomery and Grant Green and Charlie Parker, even jazz singers like Ella Fitzgerald and Eddie Jefferson, uh, who was like kind of the, one of the, those are the two first scat singers I ever heard. And on the other side, like my mom really listened to a lot of, a lot of folk stuff, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, a lot of that kind of scene, Joan Baez, and uh, even into like some kind of, my mom was really into rock and roll too, like Zeppelin and, and that kind of stuff. So we had a pretty diverse. Yeah. Uh, and my dad liked, liked to listen to comedy albums. I remember, I remember my mom, he, he putting on Richard Pryor uh, uh, on vinyl and my mom stopping the record player. Chris, listen <laughs> to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was some yeah. intense shit back then, man. It's like you're oh, hearing yeah. that for the first time as a kid. You're like, what? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> what was the first music you bought with your own money? Uh, Songs in the Key of Life. There was the fold-out album, and that came out probably a few years after I was born. But around 1980, I want to say, I was starting to kind of mess around with piano and different instruments. And that album was life to me. Every time that album came on, it was just inc incredible. And I remember that my first gig, my first paid gig was at the Ice House in Pasadena. I think I was seven years old and I got hired to sing Isn't She Lovely uh, for a Mother's Day mm. uh, celebration they had there. So Songs in the Key of Life had a, a huge impact on me and it was so much that I used my own allowance to go buy it. Also, I remember buying Men at Work I think it was probably Cargo, which I think yeah. is, that was their second album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The first yeah. one I think was was Business as Usual that had right. the big songs. And well, that's a, a very diverse. Just in those two albums, there, I think you know, if you're talking about the great Stevie Wonder, and then don't get me wrong, I love Man at Work, but they're a little more, a little more fun, a little right. different to say the right. least, right? Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. And I remember Madness as well. Our house. I remember having that album. One step beyond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about live music? What was the first concert you went to on your own or without parents? Yeah, I think in the in Claremont, the band The Untouchables came through and played at the colleges. Uh, and they were kind of like a mod ska band. And I had a lot of friends in kind of that scene with Vespas and Lambrettas and all of that. So, uh, Ride around on scooters with uh, with raccoon tails hanging from. from oh my gosh! Back. Yeah, so mods. Yeah, mods. Yeah, so we went to that, and then after that, I I I actually saw at the forum the Prince Purple Rain when he was on on tour for wow. that, like early '84. I want to say that must have been quite something. How old a guy were you? I was uh, eleven. 
Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. must have done your head in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I had to literally, I had to sneak out with some older kids, some older friends to go right. to that. Yeah. <laughs> what, do, what do you listen to when you want to dance? Usually kind of hip hop from, from high school, De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. That album really gets me up. Anything like that. I, I listen to a lot of that kind of stuff in, in high school. Uh, Jungle Brothers and Tribe Called Quest. Anything, that, kind of all that, that early sampled kind of what they used to call house music back then. Yeah, that sort of late 80s, early 90s really right. is when that was all going on, right? Yeah, yeah. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Well, uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, just a few days ago, uh, I was having a, having one of those days and um, Nick Drake, and, and I was actually thinking about that I've put that on a lot. I have the box set of Nick Drake and, you know, any of those albums that are, which just are so introspective and and so many kind of sounds that will just kind of dig at your heart river man i think that's on five leaves left it is that, which i think was song. the first album right i think it was yeah like yeah. 69 something like that yeah yeah uh yeah nick drake really yeah inspires me and just lets me be in it you know in the in sadness and, and sometimes even pulls me out of it yeah that's uh that that's an incredible album and i think he, he made three while he was alive and then as you said you got a box set and there's a whole bunch of extra stuff on there but what what an impression or lasting impression he made uh, yeah. in such a sh short life and career yeah incredible and and i just learned that he played like i think trombone and saxophone and really? all kinds of instruments yeah <laughs> He was a horn player too. I mean, think about that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite music video? You know, I, I ask this question and I, I find that people who are over a certain age usually remember stuff from the eighties or the nineties. Uh, whereas people, uh, you know, younger people today, perhaps millennials or, or even kids like my kids age or Gen Z, they don't really sort of bother with music videos, but do you have a favorite music video and why? Well, I do, and mine is not a real tr traditional, in the sense of like a music video production that you think about. Like, you know, one of my favorites is, of course, like Billie Jean. Growing up, I remember that impacting me. But I, re I, I think my favorite music video is uh, that really affected me was seeing the old gray whistle test of Bill Withers doing "Ain't No Sunshine" in particular with James Gatson over there and Melvin Dunlap. And I remember seeing that for the first time, I think probably on VHS or beta mm. and flipping out. And it just opening so many possibilities in my mind creatively and just really feeling <clears throat> close to him from just the image of him up there in this orange sweater, sweating with an acoustic guitar, black man from West Virginia. It just really just... It just fucked me up, honestly. <laughs> it did. I was like, man, come on, let's let's do this. I want to do something like this. Yeah. But for those listeners who don't know the old Grey Whistle Test, it was a TV show out of the UK. I think late sixties into maybe the late seventies. It might have gone a little longer. I think I'd left by then. But a fabulous show, originally hosted by a guy called uh, Bob Harris, and there was all sorts of wonderful stuff on the, on that show. And uh, I have to ask you: you met Bill Withers later on. I did. Um, so seeing him on All Grey Whistle Test as a, a, a teenager, I guess, something like that, or a young fella, and then yeah, yeah. meeting him all those years later, what was that like to actually meet the great Bill Withers? It was overwhelming. I, I met him through, I had been playing some shows, so, kind of songwriter nights with his daughter, Corey, 
and we'd be in rounds together. And I remember I had a show at the Roxy and there was an article, I had an album that had just come out and there was an article that kind of, it was comparing new artists to Bill Withers, which it was, I think it was, they had me in there and John Mayer and Raul Midon. And I remember that Bill, Marsha and Corey came to my show that night and Gail Miller, who wrote the article on Billboard, she was there, who's a really dear person. I think she kind of made sure he got there. And I chickened out playing one of his songs. <laughs> I had one I was going to play, and I remember talking to him after I got to sit down and have a glass of wine with him at the Roxy. And I said, Mr. Withers, I have to tell you, I, I, I was going to play one of your songs, and, and I, I just couldn't do it. And he goes, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> he goes man so many people do nothing personal but you know just do your thing just do your thing and so many people have done covers of my songs i hear covers over and over that i hear one more version of ain't no sunshine awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love it i love yeah. it well so you know your intuition was telling you something right there and then <laughs> although i know you played bill bill's music since then obviously in in, in your live shows yeah do you have a, a recent musical discovery that you would like to share with our listeners yes doris henderson who is originally from la a folk singer who also played harpsichord a black woman who was in the folk scene. I think she did one of the first Paul Simon covers and a Dylan cover. She was in a movie with Dylan. And and I was actually at the coffee shop the other day and talking to a guy, old cat, old L.A. cat, and he told me about Miss Henderson. And I, she actually has an album that I was able to get searched online and found it. And it's it's just incredibly beautiful music, kind of in the in the uh, realm of like Odetta and, and that kind of sound. And it's just amazing. Doris Henderson. Check her out. Yeah, yeah the, album, the album's called Watch the Stars. I'm just looking her up right now as we're speaking and originally out of Lakeland, Florida, but apparently spent most of her time in, in, in the UK. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that her, she was in L.A. doing some stuff and then her, her brother got enlisted and I think, I think that's what got her out to the U.K. Did a lot of stuff there and then did a lot of work at, at the Troubadour and got really into the folk scene. I'm going to be looking up Doris Anderson. It's two R's, by the way, guys, if you want to look it up yourself. <laughs> Is there a band or an artist that you love but feel perhaps they never quite got the big break they deserved. I have a feeling you might have a few of these, but is, is there one in particular? I mean, there's so many. I, 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 I think that, I mean, I have so, so many friends and, and people I've known throughout the years who just are just brilliant musicians and songwriters. Somebody that I've recently just kind of uncovered when I was doing some research for my new album is Terry Collier. Oh, um, yes. And yeah. I, I, I feel like I kind of got hip to him probably about 10 years ago. And you have to wonder, like, is it just that I hadn't heard of him? But then every time I mention him to people, people are like, who's that? Who's Terry Collier? Um, and I kind of feel like he kind of had this career where he was, I think, a childhood friend of Curtis Mayfield. And then he did a record. And then the record wasn't released for like five years until five years after that. Uh, and then it finally got released. And then he kind of did, did this thing. I think a lot of people couldn't figure out. It was folk. It was jazz. He was a great jazz guitarist. And his voice was this beautiful baritone voice. 
And I can relate to that because I figure I, I feel like I feel like it's it's a lot of times in music. It's like if you're really super diverse, it's really hard. A lot of folks want to put you in a some kind of box. And being a biracial person who is classically trained and studied jazz in college and plays blues and plays folk and plays it. I feel like I've been kind of in that thing at different points of my life. And I think Terry Collier was a person who also kind of struggled with folks really trying to figure him out instead of just listening to the music and, and celebrating the fact that he was putting it out. I actually interviewed him on my old radio show um, oh, wow. about 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm just looking up the date. You know, I've been doing this so long. You, you say, I'm, I'm pretty sure I met that person, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then sometimes you're like, no, it was in your head you thought you met them. But no, he came in and did the old show. I was pretty sure he did. And there's one song in particular of his, Lazarus Man, which I just oh, adore. Yeah. yeah. And Terry Collier. And again, if you're uh, wanting to check out the music, it's uh, C-A-L-L-I-E-R, fabulous artist. And uh, yeah, he, he should have been huge. And he's uh, left us now, unfortunately, but well worth checking out the catalog. Chris, do you have an artist or a band who is a guilty pleasure? And I always think this is a weird question because a guilty pleasure is you don't tell people, right? But we're asking people to share the, the guilty pleasures. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins <laughs> is what I'm driving and uh, I'm about to actually go on a road trip tomorrow and it always puffs me up and makes me laugh and it makes me make uh, all kinds of crazy faces and, and sing and talk to myself in the car. And, and he, he's a good, Screaming Jay Hawkins records are good road companions. They keep you awake <laughs> and he had an incredible life. He forged his birth certificate when he was 13 to enlist in the army and was in combat. A professional boxer at one point, he was the like the the champion of uh, somewhere of Anchorage, the the uh, the middleweight champion of Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> Moved, lived in Hawaii, and then started doing these records. And uh, from what I heard, the the I put a spell on you. The first version, he was so drunk, he was like blackout drunk. That that's when he started doing that, all that stuff. And then they did another another version. <laughs> when he was sober and they're like, no, right, he, yeah. keep the first take. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and he was classically trained pianist. Just a fascinating person. And you could hear that, I mean, in, in all his records. Yeah. Uh, that's my guilty pleasure. Bit of a nutcase, let's be honest, yeah. I always like to finish off our, uh, our interviews with this question. How are you feeling right now. I, f I feel inspired. I really do. I was actually speaking to some friends yesterday. <clears throat> and uh, the fact that I've been able to really be blessed with so much work and interest in my work during such a, just a delicate time in all of our lives really just uh, makes me understand the power of art and the power of music even more and have a, even a, a deeper personal relationship with it and my own personal responsibility with it to keep pulling and pushing and trying new things and putting new things out. I'm, I'm really inspired to go in the studio next week and record a new album. I've got just a, a couple handfuls of songs I'm going to take in. I just actually finished one yesterday. I think I'm going to call it Sidney Poitier, but it, it's about Sidney Poitier and, and about the reminder the, of what he represents and not to forget that and not to forget his elegance and his grace and his audacity at times to do some of the things and push some of the boundaries that he was able to. And a, a lot of great, great songs. I've got one about the Tulsa riots. I've got a few songs about really just about trying to lift people up. One called Meet Me at the Bottom, 
that's about uh, about pulling each other up from a place of anxiety, and uh, it's really about mental health, and a couple songs that really deal with that. I feel like that's a, a message that we all need right now as we're trying to figure out what's next. At the same time, I want to keep reminding people, you can't find a solution to a problem until you identify the problem. If you look around it or pretend it's not there, you're never going to find a solution. So so that's that. I'm really inspired to do this album and to get it out there, hopefully by the summer. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Chris. Guest on this week's edition of The Sound of Success, Chris Pierce. Go check his music out wherever you listen to music. And uh, I hope to see you on the road somewhere soon, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, that was fun. Right on. I think I could talk to you all day, man. <laughs> well, look, if, 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 how long was that car ride? It was about four hours, right? At least, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was fucking insane, Elizabeth. Yeah. It was insane. Because yeah. we were stuck in Salt Lake City and we didn't think we were getting out. And by the time we got to Fort Collins, I think it was 11, yeah. and we picked up a car and I think we got to the hotel at three in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was Jim standing there in the, in the lobby. I remember yeah, there was that. Jim, half, yeah. half fucking drunk. In the lobby. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, good luck out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. <laughs>